These four words are the last four entries of the Oxford English Dictionary Word of the Year. Brilliant. So in 2013, it was the year of the selfie. 2014, the vape. It's kind of smoking devices that we use. Sorry, we people <laughs> use. Sorry, it just came out there in front of a lot of people. Um, emoji. I smoked for two weeks. Don't record this. I smoked for two weeks, and then my dad found out. That's another story. Um, vape, that's the smoking device that some people elsewhere use. Uh, emoji, that's the little uh, funny smiling face that you can whack on the end of a text. It's really irritating if you've got a Blackberry and can't work out what it is. But post-truth, that was the word that I heard on the radio this week that's very, very interesting. It's an adjective, so I'm told, that uh, relates to or denotes circumstances, listen to this, in which objective facts are less influential in shaping public opinion than appeals to emotion or personal belief. In other words, objective truth is not as important as how you feel. Really significant entry into the dictionary, which I read from cover to cover on a yearly basis. But there's a man called Caspar Grathwall. It's a great name. Caspar Grathwall is the president, if you didn't know this already, of the Oxford English Dictionary. And he says this, fueled by the rise of social media as a news source, there is a growing distrust of facts offered up by the establishment. He says you can see this in the American election, um, you can see this in Brexit, let's not go there. But you can see this in the rise of social media to say this is what truth is. We need to uh, distrust those in authority over us. Um, it's a kind of a, not a silent revolution, but it's a kind of a personal revolution where truth is eroded and post-truth is not an after-truth, but it's not a question describing time, but in a descriptor of value and of worth. So there's no such thing as objective truth. Truth really is subjective. It's how you uh, interpret the data yourself that matters. Rather than being objective, truth is subjective. That is a huge amount of truth to bear, not post-truth. That is a huge amount of weight to bear on a passage like Luke 24, verses 1 to 12. We're nearly at the end of our year-long journey in Luke's gospel, and Luke's been hard at work. He says so in the first four verses of chapter 1. He says, I, I want to interview eyewitnesses. Many people have undertaken to write down an account of Jesus' life, but I've gone and I've interviewed people who actually saw these events, and I've carefully recorded these down because I want you to be sure of your faith. I want you to have rock solid, not post-truth. I want you to have rock solid confidence about the fact that these events, about the person and life, the death, the resurrection of Jesus that happened as a historical event 2,000 years ago. We're looking at this passage, as Martin said, at the wrong time of year. I'm sure you worked that out. This is an Easter passage, but such is life. And what's interesting as we look at Luke's Gospel, chapter 24, verses 1 to 12, is that there's some information that's exactly the same as the other three Gospel writers, but there's also something that's different. So, for example, in Luke, 5, uh, Luke 24, verse 5, you are introduced to two characters dressed in dazzling apparel. It's not an aerial or a washing clothes kind of advert. These guys were angels, two people at the tomb who are met by the women who come with ointment that they've prepared, and they're met by two angelic beings. And they question them. Because these women, and we're going to look, they have made three mistakes that each one of us can make. 
And so the angels ask the women and say, uh, why are you here? Why are you looking for someone who is alive amongst people who are dead? And they ask them that question not to kind of beat them over the head with a new reality. They ask them that question because it's a, a counseling question. It's a, not a rhetorical question. It's a question that's designed to heal their hearts. It's a question that's designed to um, straighten out their misunderstanding. Because the three questions that they have, the three mistakes that they've made are three questions that are three mistakes that we can make too. And so the angels go after them. They're not after them intellectually. They go after their hearts. It's a counseling question. Why are you looking for the living among the dead? Here are three mistakes that we can make and that the ladies made in this passage. Number one, we and they denied the miracle of the resurrection. They denied the miracle of the resurrection. These ladies came prepared for a full tomb. They were not expecting it to be empty. Immediately that shows us that they believe that Jesus Christ was among the dead. That's what's behind this question from the angels. Why are you looking for the living among the dead? No, no, we're looking for Jesus who died, and so we're going to a place where there are a bucket load of dead people. If you look at uh, the other religions of the world, and if you want to pursue the leaders of Buddhism, if you want to uh, pursue the leader of Islam, of any other religion in the world, what do you do? You can't go looking for them because they've died, but you go after their writings. You find them in their memoirs. You find them in the stories that they told. You find them in their religious books and literature. That's the only way that you can go after the religious leaders of the world, the big world religions. And the women came to the tomb thinking that they would find Jesus among the dead because he died. And Luke begins by showing us that to treat Jesus in this way, to deny the miracle of the resurrection is a huge mistake that you and I can make. You say, well, actually, I believe in Jesus' teaching. I believe he was a good moral teacher. I believe that he was an example that we can follow. But actually, rather than just finding Jesus inspiring, rather than just respecting him, rather than just honoring him in the way of behavior, to say that Jesus did not rise from the grave is just to make the first mistake. To say simply that uh, he didn't get up from the grave, to say simply that this is just a huge host, to say that this is a mental construct, to say that the women were deluded in some way, to say that those who saw him were misguided, to say that they were a primitive people, well, that's just the same mistake that the ladies made. Look, what do I mean? Here's a mistake that people don't seem to recognize today. People can say, oh, the reason why the majority of people believe that the resurrection happened in the first century is because it's a non-scientific, it's a non-medical, it's a, a pre-technological era. And if I was there, I would have believed it. But we're so much further on now in our technological understanding. We've got a thing called the internet. We've got a thing of not just word of mouth, not just letters. We can check stuff out through a whole host of empirical evidence. We've got DNA that we can do some work on there. We can see that this is impossible to happen. And so we deny the miracle of the resurrection because we're modern people. But to make that proposition is just the same as was made in the first century. We're no different in terms of our IQ. We're different in terms of our place in history. But to say that we are cleverer in some way than those of the first century is what's called chronological arrogance. We're in a different time. We've got different experiences. We've got uh, different resources that we can use. But we are not more intelligent in terms of IQ 
than the people of the first century. To say that is intellectual arrogance. And Luke knows this. Luke is saying it's just as hard, it's just as difficult for people in the first century to believe that somebody has risen from the grave than it is for you and for me. We're just in a different place in history. Do not say that we cannot believe in miracles, but they could. Do not say that we cannot believe in the power of God, but they could, because they're more simple of mind. That's completely chronologically arrogant of us to have that position. There are people in the first century who struggled with the resurrection just as much as we did. In Acts 17, the Apostle Paul is standing up before the Areopagus, really learned group of people. And he's preaching on the Lord Jesus Christ on his life. All is going kind of well until it gets to uh, Acts 17, verse 31, and he starts to speak about the resurrection from the dead, that Jesus was raised from the dead. As soon as that happened, the sermon ended. Perhaps you wish this sermon would end. But as soon as that happened, his sermon ended because people started to laugh at him. They thought he had a kind of an intellectual credibility. But when they started to speak and hear these words about the resurrection of the dead, they laughed him off the platform, so to speak. Who on earth could believe in such baloney? Would be a rough translation of Acts 17 in the sermon. They started to laugh at him. No one believes in that. Why am I saying that to you? It's just as hard for people in the first century to believe in the miracle of the resurrection as it is for us. And Luke knows that. And that's why he writes this passage in the way that he does. What do I mean? Luke presents us with evidence. Let's have a look at it. He names names. Luke names names. What do I mean? Verse 10. He does not say, hey, there's a bunch of women in general here. He names names. He doesn't say there's a bunch of apostles who saw this stuff happen. He names names. Look, he mentions Joanna. You can go back to Luke uh, 8.3, Joanna. She was the administrator of Herod. He doesn't end there. He, we meet Mary Magdalene again. Mary Magdalene was there and she stood next to Joanna. Remember her? Um, also Mary, the mother of James. He names names. Why is that significant? Because you can think, oh, hang on, this was written a bucket load of years after it actually happened. No, it was not. The New Testament writers were writing about 20 to 45 years after these events actually happened. Why do you name names? So you can actually go and speak to these people. That's what Luke is saying. This is not a cover-up. I'm not going to gloss this. I'm not going to give you a half-baked story. These women were there. Joanna, Mary Magdalene, Mary the mother of James, they were all there. In other words, you don't believe me, you can check it out. Luke was really clear that people would not believe what he was saying just by reading his gospel. So he said, here's the evidence. And out it came on a, a bucket load of computer paper, on reams of paper. He said, all these women saw it. These people saw it. And if you don't believe me, you could have gone to the writing of the Apostle Paul. 1 Corinthians 15, for example, that Martin read. 20 years after the death of Jesus, Paul wrote those words. Luke wrote these words. 40, 45 years after these events happened. Why does that matter? Because Luke is saying, I know this is almost impossible to believe, but it really happened. Don't deny the miracle of the resurrection, because don't just believe what I wrote. Go and check it out. Go and speak to these women. Go and speak to these men that were there. Go and ask the 500 people that Paul writes about in 1 Corinthians 15. They saw it happen too. Imagine you're in Turkey. 
And you've got a copy of Luke's Gospel that's going round. It's now um, AD uh, seven, uh, 65, 70, something like that. And you're reading what this happened, what happened here. And you think, this is unbelievable. But I'm in Turkey, and this is happening in Jerusalem. Ah, but Joanna uh, and Mary and another Mary, I know what I'm going to do. I'm going to get my transport for Jerusalem travel card, and I'm going to hit it and tap it on the way in, and I'm going to go and check it out. I'm going to go to Jerusalem. It's only two days' travel away. That's why the women are here. So that if you're in Turkey, if you're in Asia Minor of old, you can go and speak to the women. Did it happen? This seems so outlandish. Did it happen? Yes, it happened. How do you know? Because I saw it happen. Yeah, but I don't believe you. I'm going to go and ask someone else. Okay, go and ask Mary. Go and ask, go and ask. Why does Luke name names? Because he knows, no matter where you are in history, this is so hard to believe that you're tempted to deny it. But friends, don't. Don't deny the miracle of the resurrection. Because Luke names names, and he does that to say this actually happened. This actually happened. Thousands of people would have read this letter as it went round, this scroll, and would have struggled to believe because they weren't there in this pre-internet, pre-radio, pre-television age where you had to trust word of mouth. It was an oral culture. Books were incredibly expensive. And as this letter was passed around on this scroll, you would have been tempted not to believe it, to deny the miracle of the resurrection. But... Luke says, you can check it out. These women were actually there, not just them. There were thousands of people who saw it. But look at how the disciples respond, verse 11. This is nonsense. No one. That's just impossible. And these are the disciples, by the way. Yeah, These are the people that have been around Jesus' circle of friends for three years, and they are struggling to believe it. They laugh it out the park. I mean, there have been loads and loads of little groups throughout history who believed that their leader was the Son of God or had a supernatural power. Yeah, Waco, Texas is one off the top of my head. There are loads of little groups that remain little groups because their leaders are not who they say they are. They're not who they claim to be. And their religions and their gatherings and their cults, they just fizzle out. But one of the questions if you deny the miracle of the resurrection is, how did the Christian message spread? What empowered people to die? What empowered people in AD 200 when Nero was lighting up Christian candles, Christian people covered in tar, just to have some illumination, some fun at night? What empowered Christians to stand up for their faith at that point? Why did people risk certain death? Why did people go into the Colosseum and were ripped apart by animals for the humor of an emperor? Why did they do that? Only surely if it's true. Only surely if the miracle of the resurrection actually happened. There's only one possible explanation for people to have their uh, worldview completely restructured, to have their paradigms uh, reworked, to have their prejudices overwhelmed, and that's it, if it actually happened. These people wanted to deny the miracle of the resurrection, but they couldn't. There's just too much evidence. And so they believed and they stood up for Jesus and they shared the message of hope and life and resurrection power. And they laid down their life because of it, because it's worth it. Why? Because it's true. 
because it has intellectual credibility, it has chronological credibility. There's historical evidence that William Ramsey thought was not enough. So he thought, I'm going to disprove the gospel. He had an eminent mind, but he looked at the evidence and he became a Christian. Google him. Check it out. Don't trust me. William Ramsey, who thought he could disprove the gospel, and he became a Christian wonderfully. Read um, any of the modern work that defends the Christian faith by looking into the gospel accounts. And a lot of it says this is, has huge chronological credibility. This is historically verifiable. And that's why Luke named names. Friends, you don't become a Christian by being convinced of an argument. You become confronted by the person of Jesus, who God in his power raised from the grave. It's not a, a reformation in some way by conforming yourself to an ideal. Jesus was a good moral teacher. He laid down his life as a good example for us. Jesus Christ is a watertight person. He's not a watertight argument. And the first mistake that the ladies made and that we can make too is by denying the miracle of the resurrection. Here's the second one. They can deny the meaning of the resurrection. They can deny its miraculous occurrence, its historical reliability. But the second one is they can also deny, we can deny the meaning of it. What do I mean by that? Look at verses 6 and 7. The angels meet the ladies and they say, he's resurrected. Why are you looking for him? Why are you looking for the living among the dead? I haven't really seen the emphasis before. I mean, you'd expect the angels being decent kind of angelic beings, yeah? Having read the Oxford English Dictionary or whatever they could, they would have a certain etiquette, and so if they were asked a question, you'd expect angelic beings to respond to the question that they're asked, but they don't. Verses 6 and 7, they ask a question of the ladies, why are you looking for the living among the dead? And yet they don't explain the resurrection. They talk about Jesus' death. I hadn't seen that before. I'm so familiar with this little story. Look at what they say. They don't say anything about the resurrection at all. They say, the reason you don't understand the resurrection, the reason you don't understand that is because you didn't expect it because you did not understand Jesus' death. Let me tell you about Jesus' death. If you want to understand why Jesus had to rise, why he did rise, you need to understand his death. Verse 7, there's a little word there that controls, in Greek, the whole sentence. It's the little word, must. Must. It's the controlling word for the phrase. He must be delivered. He must suffer. He must die. He must be raised. You know, it's possible, I'm sure it hasn't happened this morning yet, but it's possible if you look at the evidence, if you study um, internal evidence in the Bible, external evidence as well, you could be convinced of the miracle of the resurrection. The event actually happened. You could be convinced of that, but you could still miss its meaning completely. You could say, okay, you've persuaded me. I've looked at the documentation. I've looked at the evidence. I've heard the writers. Okay, it happened. But you could still be just like the women who make the same mistake, and they don't understand its meaning. That's why the angels say, you didn't understand that he had to die. What does that mean? What's the importance of that? They knew that he had suffered from them. They knew that he had died for them. But they didn't know why. The penny hadn't dropped in that sense. They didn't know why he must die. They didn't understand why he had to. 
What was the, uh, the impact on Jesus' death at this point on the women's life? Look at verse 1. All uh, the effect on them was that they prepared some spices and they knew in a kind of a sense that all they had to do was to honor Jesus' memory. That's all they were intending to do. They were going to the tomb with uh, some resources to honor the memory of the one that they loved, the one that they followed for three years of their life, the one that promised so much but apparently was delivering on none of his promises. That's verse 1. They didn't understand that he had to die. I say it carefully, but it was a, the emotion and the sentiment of a funeral. In verse 1, it's a, the overtones of a funeral where you respect uh, and you want to honor the memory of someone that you love. They're walking very slowly to the tomb, I'm sure. They want to honor his person and his memory. But then look at verse 8. After the interaction with the angels and after the explanation of his death, everything, and I mean everything, has changed. Look at how they respond. When they understand the gospel, when they get it, when they remember his words, the other gospels say they're running. They're filled with life and light. They're filled with joy. They're not (coughs) trudging anywhere. It's not the funeral. It's just a distant memory. This is a celebration. This is a party. We're not hiding. We now need to tell people that Jesus is alive. And now we understand why he must die, and he had to die for us. And he had to die for you and for me too. And when you see that, the memorial nature of our understanding of Jesus' death, that goes completely out the window, and this is a celebration. We have a privilege this morning of celebrating and remembering the death of the Lord Jesus Christ, which we'll do shortly at the communion table. But here from verses 1 to verse 8, there's a complete change in their paradigm, in their blueprint, in their understanding of the life and ministry of Jesus and the understanding of all of human history in the future because Jesus died, but now he lives. They understood why he must die. Have you ever been to uh, someone's graveside? When you go to someone's graveside, you can be caused to well up in tears. You have in your mind's eye and in your heart these emotions that, you, that are motivated by sweet memories, hopefully happy memories, perhaps some sad experiences too of the experiences you had with the person who's now no longer with you. You can be very moved, and rightly so, when you go to remember someone's life at a graveside. But here, that's not how you relate to Jesus when you see him. Here there has been a complete change in understanding of the reason that Jesus Christ died and why he must die. You don't come to Jesus with a memorial sense or a remembrance sense. You now see, as the ladies see, that Jesus Christ is alive. He has risen from the dead and he is alive. Friends, do you know that Jesus Christ had to die for you and for me? Are you convinced about the event actually happening? Jesus Christ rose from the grave. It was a miracle. But are you convinced he had to die for you? If you do understand that, it's actually quite insulting initially. Because it's saying that Jesus Christ had to die. He must die because we, we are such rebels. We are so sinful. We are so powerless 
We cannot pull ourselves up by our own bootstraps. We need to be rescued. And that's why Jesus Christ had to come. That's why he must die, because we couldn't save ourselves. And we needed a rescuer. He's not an example. He's a saviour. He's not someone who just died. He's a deliverer. And that's why he died and God raised his son from the grave. If you think that he's just uh, an example, then you'll try and emulate him. You'll work really hard to do what he said. You'll work really hard to fulfill the example that he set. But he didn't just come as an example. He died as a substitute. He died in our place. Well, just imagine two people. Two people who struggle with different things, who they understand that the event of the resurrection happened, but they don't understand its meaning. Okay? Perhaps it's you. The first person really struggles with self-pity. They really struggle with self-pity. They think, um, I live a pretty good life. I keep my nose clean. I'm not as bad as them. I do less bad things as those people. I, I give in the offering. I serve in the church. I seek to love and honor my neighbor. But actually, my life is not quite as I planned. It's certainly not as I hoped. And if God is there, you are letting me down. It's not working out. You're thinking, I work hard for God, but God is not paying me back. He's not fulfilling my dreams. He's shattering them. He's not honoring my plans. He's ripping them up. And so you struggle with self-pity. You think, if God was there, then he would surely have done what I said. Life isn't fair and God's not there. Your life is just kind of a grind. You think you deserve better. For all I'm doing, quid pro quo, God is not honoring me. He's not helping me. He's not coming through from me. You don't live as if Jesus was alive. You're living as if he is dead. You don't realize if that's you or if that's someone that you know that Jesus Christ had to die for you. You think you can save yourself. You think if you work hard enough, if you give enough, if you serve enough, if you pray enough, if you read enough, then God will come through for you. God is not coming through for me now. It's a self-pity that grows up in your heart. You're not paying me back. Friends, if that's you, you don't see that Jesus Christ had, he must die for you. When you see that Jesus Christ had to die for you, you think, I don't deserve anything. I don't deserve anything, but in Christ, God gives me everything. And when you see that, that just completely diffuses self-pity. It gives you a whole new perspective on life and on the world. God doesn't owe me anything, but he gives me everything in Jesus. When you see that, it's a great tonic for self-pity. But there's a second person. second person does not struggle with self-pity. They struggle with criticism. When someone criticizes them on the smallest of things, it can ruin their day and ruin their week. A few weeks ago, I was watching the uh, second Harry Potter film where you get introduced to Dobby. Dobby the house elf. You know, Dobby is the uh, CGI-created little uh, animal, person, elf, who bangs his head on anything because he can never do anything right. He does everything wrong. You, uh, hopefully, apart from his dress sense, you, your heart can go out to him because nobody loves him. And he can do nothing right. You can feel just like a spiritual Dobby. Or you're banging your head on something because you think, I can't do anything right. That person's just criticized me. That person's just spoken down to me. They've not seen anything that I've done right. They've just spoken about a small thing that I'm doing wrong. But it becomes a huge thing. Because you too, that person too, does not see that Jesus Christ had to die for them. Had to die for them. 
When you understand the gospel, as these women did from verse 1 to verse 8, you see this. You can see, look, I was so sinful. I was so broken. I was so damaged. I was such a rebel. And yet, and yet, Jesus Christ acted. He must die. Why? Friends, you mean so much to Jesus Christ outside of honoring the glory of his Father, that Jesus Christ was willing to die for you. He was willing to lose everything for you. That's how much you mean to Jesus. I'm not here to stroke your ego this morning, but the Bible says that. The primary motivation of Jesus Christ going to the cross, dying for the sins of the world, is for the glory of his Father, to make much of him, to honor him. But, tied and twin to that, how did he do that? Because he wanted to save you. He wanted to save me too. When you see that Jesus Christ had to die for you, that he must die for you, it disarms your self-pity. It removes, if you struggle with uh, criticism, Jesus was willing to lose his father because he wanted to save you. He was willing to be cut off and go to hell rather than lose you. Friends, until you see the centrality of Jesus' death, the, morali- the miraculous nature of the resurrection and the meaning of the resurrection, you'll always struggle with those things. And if it's not those things, it'll be something else. But look again at the gospel and see the full extent of the love of Jesus Christ who says, I want to lose, I'm willing to lose everything if I can have you. Because I will glorify my Father through saving you. Through saving people that cannot earn it, who don't deserve it but I don't want to lose you. (coughs) Thirdly, if you can uh, deny the miracle of the resurrection, if you can uh, not understand the meaning of the resurrection, the third thing, the third mistake that we can make before we go to the table is that we can deny the spiritual reality of the resurrection, especially as conservative evangelical Christians. We can be very guilty of this. We can be very strong on understanding the fact that Jesus died for the sins of the world. That's a historical event rooted in history. We can be really strong on understanding the meaning of the resurrection, but we can be very, very weak on this third thing. Here are the women. They also denied the spiritual reality of the resurrection. What do I mean by that? The Bible speaks a lot about feelings that uh, conservative evangelical Christians sometimes don't. We can be guilty of a lot of head knowledge and very little heart knowledge and experience. The Bible says uh, that Jesus died for the sins of the world, was raised by his Father on the third day, but for some of us as Christians, in our relationship to him, he might as well be dead. So you go back to the graveside. What do I mean? I was at a funeral in the middle of the year, and it was an absolutely... um, Emotionally draining event, seeing sons of a mother pouring out, adult sons pouring out their hearts, pouring out tears upon tears, and looking at a tomb. Praise God, the lady was a Christian. But no longer did they relate to their mum in the same way than they did when she was alive. They uh, would relate to her now, not in an inspiring way, not in a personal way, not in an emotional way, not in a, a real physical way. It was... It's completely different. 
we can treat our relationship with God in the same way. He can be dead to us, although we, he is alive and very much alive. Here's what I wanted to ask you. Is that your experience as a Christian? Are you looking for the living among the dead? Or are you still treating God as if he is dead? The Bible, in Psalm 34, says these words. It says, taste and see that the Lord is good. Taste and see. There's a man called Jonathan Edwards. He's a famous American preacher. And he wrote on this psalm, he says, taste and see that the Lord is good. Why did the psalmist write that? I mean, did, didn't these Christians know that God was good? Didn't they know that he was kind? Didn't they appreciate him? Of course they did. But it's not enough just to know it. You've got to sense it. In the same sermon, he says, everybody knows that honey is sweet. Everybody knows that. But you've got to taste it. You've got to experience it in your whole being. Friends, I'm trying to probe us, I'm trying to provoke us to say, how do we relate to our Father in heaven? How do we relate to his Son? Do we have the empowering presence of his Spirit in our life and in our experience? This passage in Easter pushes us beyond any sort of dry religiosity, any sort of um, mental, intellectual understanding alone. This is the spirit-empowered, spirit-filled life that says, taste and see that the Lord is good. Here's another way of saying it. It's not enough to know that Jesus loves you. That's a knowledge thing. You have to know and experience his love. James 2 it says that... Uh, you can know that there is a God because the demons do it. It just causes a shudder. It just causes a, an intellectual amount of knowledge can cause an experience of him. But they don't know him personally. Friends, do you know him personally? You can have come to church for so many years, so many months, so many sermons, so many small group studies, but you don't know him, you just know about him. Friends, do you know him? Have you experienced the full extent of his love in your heart? Are you standing at a graveside looking at a resurrected king, but you're treating him as if he was still dead? Friends, do you know him? Have you tasted and seen his goodness? Have you actually uh, had that experience of knowing him personally work in your life, knowing the joy of sins forgiven, knowing the hope of heaven? Does that truth change your life and experience? We don't just need to know that God is good. We need to experience his goodness. We don't just need to uh, know that God is a God of glory and holiness. We need to experience and find him glorious, to find him loving, not just know that he is love itself. Have you experienced that change of heart, friends? The way to experience that is Easter. The way to experience that is this passage. There's that moment as the kids are going to return in a moment, there's that moment in C.S. Lewis where the children finally go through the back of the wardrobe. They go through those big coats and they find a whole new world. But Disney then stole that sentence and made a song about it. Friends, when you understand the resurrection as its historical rootedness, in its meaning, Jesus died. He had to die for us because we can't save ourselves. He wanted to die for us because he wanted to rescue us. When you... Understand that. It's just like going through the wardrobe to a whole new spiritual reality that Jesus Christ doesn't just love you from a distance. He is way up close and he can indwell in you by his spirit in your heart. 
This table doesn't just celebrate a historical event. It is a living, personal relationship with the King of the universe. And that's available to you this morning in the gospel. It's just like going through the wardrobe. Have you gone through the wardrobe and have you seen the whole new spiritual reality of knowing Jesus, knowing him? There is no greater thing. Let's pray. Father, please help us as we come around a table, not just to celebrate a dead man, but to celebrate a living saviour whose name is Jesus. Save us, please save us from just celebrating the faith of the dead, but help us please to have uh, the faith of someone who is alive. Help us not just to stand outside the empty tomb to see the event that happened. Please help us to say that the Lord Jesus Christ reigns. He reigns in the world and he reigns in my heart too. Father, if there are people amongst us who are cold of heart, please warm us even around the table afresh. Please also renew in us the joy of our salvation. And if there are those who think, actually, this didn't happen, Father, please cause us to have uh, the intellectual credibility to go back and look at the evidence and to ask questions. And Father, please reveal yourself to those people, I pray. Amen.